Hello, and welcome to the Great War Podcast, an in-depth look at the origins, battles, and consequences of the First World War. Episode 58, Crisis in the East. When the Battle of the Somme began on July the 1st, 1916, it marked the end of seven months of anxious waiting. The General Allied Offensive was finally in full swing, and the Central Powers were being hammered on all fronts. Although we've talked at great length about the effect these offensives had on the belligerents, we have not talked at all about their effect on the remaining neutrals, the most immediate of which was Romania. The plan for today is to set the stage for Romania's entry into the Great War, which she finally did on August the 27th, 1916. In order to go about this the proper way, we need to head back to the Eastern Front. The Romanian government had been watching Brusilov's offensive with great interest, and it was the success or failure of Brusilov's attack in July and August on which Romania's intervention hinged. When Alexei Brusilov launched his Galician offensive on June the 4th, it was as if a cataclysmic force had been unleashed on Austria-Hungary. Four armies of Russian infantry, backed by 2,000 guns and cavalry, attacked across a 350-kilometer front. The size and scope of the offensive had caught the Central Powers by surprise, and the Habsburg positions crumbled under the onslaught. Their greatest loss of territory occurred near their town of Lutsk, where Brusilov had shattered Archduke Ferdinand's 4th Army, gaining 60 kilometers and inflicting over 12,000 casualties. For a time, it seemed the Russian juggernaut was unstoppable, and the Austrians were incapable of orchestrating a response. Konrad von Hutzendorf had spent the early days of the attack in a panic. He paced the halls of Teschen Castle, but he was soon faced to accept the uncomfortable truth. Without German assistance, the dual monarchy faced extinction. On June 8th, Konrad traveled to Berlin where he humbled himself before Falkenhayn. The German chief responded by dispatching four divisions from the Western Front, where they were quickly thrown into the line, stopping the Russians just outside of Koval. Although Konrad and Falkenhayn were quick to hail it as a victory, their successful defense owed more to the fact that the offensive had exceeded Brusilov's wildest expectations. Brusilov discovered that he had bitten off more than he could chew. By crushing the enemy's defenses, Brusilov now had to navigate his armies into the next dangerous phase of the attack. Casualties had been heavy, and his artillery had exhausted most of their shell supply. At Lutsk, Russian units had marched 24 hours ahead of their own communication lines. To ensure momentum was not lost, Brusilov had ordered a temporary halt on June the 24th. That morning, the Anglo-French guns began their bombardment on the Somme. Knowing this would be a distraction for the Germans, Brusilov widely used the respite to resupply his forces. The surprise was out in the open now, and Brusilov knew there would be no more easy victories. As Brusilov pondered his next move, the success of the attack represented an unwelcome burden for Stavka chief Mikhail Alexeyev. It will be remembered from episodes 43 and 44 that Brusilov had attacked on his own initiative. He foresaw his offensive as an ancillary effort, used to pin Austrian forces in the south and alleviating the pressure on the northern groups, who were earmarked for the main advance. Alexeyev opposed this plan as did the other senior officers, including Alexei Evert and Alexei Kropatkin. 
Everett and Kropakin, you'll remember, were in charge of the army groups north and west, and it was these guys who were tasked with the main assault slated for June 10th. No one expected Brusilov to find success, but when he did, it changed the whole dynamic. Everett and Kropakin refused to attack, arguing that Brusilov should be given full authority. Brusilov opposed this idea. It had not been his intention to shoulder the main attack, and Brusilov seethed at what he considered the treasonous behavior of Everett and Kropakin. Mikhail Alexeyev was stuck in a bind. Not only did he have to appease the systemic myopia of Russian command, he also had to balance the concerns of his best general with those of the Western allies, who were demanding Russia's full commitment. Alexeyev was a hard worker, and a realist, but his powers in Stavka were quite limited. Only the Tsar had the authority to dismiss or appoint generals. Alexeyev did not want to spoil the Tsar's good mood by bringing his concerns to St. Petersburg, so he had to make do with what he had. Fortunately for Alexeyev, Brusilov was a good judge of character. At his headquarters, Brusilov would spend the quiet hours walking the fields, or in quiet prayer in his quarters. It was an opportunity to think and to ponder his next move. He quickly banished the thought of shutting down the operation. He knew Alexeyev was on his side, but there was little that could be done about Everett and Kropatkin. His only option was to keep plugging away as best he could. Brusilov had a supreme confidence in himself and his mission. He knew the eyes of Russia's friends and enemies were upon him. Whether he liked it or not, he was the face of the new Russian war effort. While Brusilov prepared his forces for the next phase of the offensive, the Austro-German alliance was coming apart at the seams. It'll be remembered that to secure German assistance, Conrad had surrendered his last shred of independence through Falkenhayn's intervention. As part of Falkenhayn's terms, Conrad had called an end to his offensive in Italy, and began the slow process of redeploying troops from the Alps. Falkenhayn had won this round. There was no denying that the presence of German officers and infantry had a cooling effect on Habsburg leadership. All Austro-Hungarian forces were now commanded by Alexander von Linsingen, a German general who orchestrated the brilliant defense at Koval. Many of the Habsburg units now contained senior German officers as chiefs of staff. This included the newly formed Army Group Fernhand, commanded by the heir apparent Archduke Karl. Not even the future emperor was spared from this process. His appointed chief of staff was none other than Major General Hans von Secht, an ultra-conservative Prussian who regarded the dual monarchy with disdain. As more Austro-German units arrived in Galicia, Konrad and Linsingen oversaw a total overhaul of their positions. Where the terrain was not in their favor, they withdrew to better ground and built up their defenses. Lines were shortened, and there was a greater emphasis on preventing the Russians from reaching their trenches. To this end, bridges were blown and causeways were flooded. They also used Galicia's natural geography to its full advantage. The countless rivers and marshes provided natural barriers which would limit the approach of any Russian formation. For the Central Powers, making sure they had enough troops to man these defenses was a priority. Conrad and Linsingen thus cannibalized many of the units arriving from France and Italy. New formations were created which gave them a greater degree of movement and flexibility. Since they were defending a front 350 kilometers long, the ability to move around a battlefield was of supreme importance. By splitting their forces, the Central Powers were taking a calculated risk, 
and some formations were left dangerously under strength. The Austrian First Army is a prime example of this. The Austrian First Army was commanded by the Croatian-born general Paul von Palalo. General Palalo had fought with distinction in the opening days of the attack, but had since been stripped of his best reserves, which included an elite guards division. Since manpower was at a premium, Conrad felt that his armies positioned in Lutsk and Bukovina were in greater need of these reserves than Palalo. Instead of being reimbursed, Palalo had to stretch his forces beyond what was considered reasonable. On June the 28th, it was reported that 1st Army had just a single cavalry corps patrolling 6 kilometers up front. This was the harsh reality of the time. Although the situation at Lutsk and in Bukovina remained fragile, Conrad and Linzingen were increasingly drawn to the center. Russian armies were beginning to mass on the banks of the stair, and it appeared Brusilov had chosen his next target, the towns of Brody and Lemberg. Before the Central Powers had shored their defense of Brody, Brusilov launched a preemptive strike in the south, which caught the Austro-Germans by surprise. On June the 18th, the Russians captured the strategic city of Chernowitz, near the foothills of the Carpathian Mountains. Chernowitz was a city of diplomatic significance. Its proximity to the Romanian border meant the Russians were now able to defend Romania's northern frontier. This was grave news for Conrad, who raised the specter of Romania several times in his talks with Berlin, but Falkenhayn had always dismissed them as improbable. Romania was predominantly rural, and Falkenhayn maintained the chance of her entering the war before the harvest was unfathomable. Conrad remained unconvinced. After all, both men had made the same mistake about Serbia and Russia, and we all know how that turned out. After the fall of Chernowitz, there had been little progress on the Galician front. Brusilov had not ordered any major efforts. Instead, he focused his energies on small line-straightening operations, similar to the ones Haig would soon undertake on the Somme. In effect, Brusilov was tapping along the wall, trying to find cracks in the Austro-German defenses. Then, on July the 10th, he found some. Here, Brusilov benefited from the central powers being absorbed in their own plans. Conrad and von Linzingen knew the Russians would attack soon, and wanted to launch a preemptive strike. The problem was that the two men could not agree on where Brusilov would attack next. Linzingen argued the most likely spot was Koval, just south of the Pripyat marshes. Koval's railyard was a switched line for most of Galicia. If the Russians took it, it would provide them rail access to the Carpathian Mountains. Conrad, on the other hand, believed the Russians would aim to take the town of Brody, which would be the first step towards capturing the Galician capital city of Lemberg. This was what Conrad floated in the open, but behind closed doors there was another reason. The defenses at Brody had yet to be complete, and the junction between 1st and 2nd armies was thinly held by a few companies of raw reserves. Whether Bruce Love knew of this, no one could say. But as the Austro-Germans were absorbed in their own preparations, they ignored the taps of Bruce Love's hammer, which were growing louder by the day. Conrad's suspicions were confirmed when on July the 16th, Bruce Love launched a massive assault near Brody, using Vladimir Sakharov's 11th Army. The attack fell on the thin line between 1st and 2nd Austrian armies, 
but it was Paul Palalo's understrength first army which took the brunt of it. Sakharov's attack was an immediate success. A Hungarian division fled nearly 20 kilometers, which collapsed Palalo's right wing. Palalo's calls for reinforcements were sent out, but none were answered. Nearby German units, including the 108th Infantry Division, were already on trains but could not be rerouted without significant delay. Outnumbered nearly 3 to 1, Palalo could do little to stem the tide. By July 21st, the Russians were across the Stur and Lipa rivers, leaving a deep gash in the center of the line. By 6 p.m. on July 27th, Russian troops entered Brody and captured 13,000 prisoners in three large ammunition stockpiles. A shell-shocked Palalo arrived in Lemberg the following day and wrote the immortal question, quote, I don't understand how it is that we just cannot hold any more. Have the Russians become so good? End quote. Fortunately, the answer to Palalo's question was no, but the fall of Brody could no longer cover up the uncomfortable truth, which was that Habsburg military leadership was just downright awful, and its troops equally so. The fact that Brody had been taken from right under their noses, especially since they were the ones who expected an attack there in the first place, was the last straw. If the Austrian artillery doesn't inflict losses on us, then we have an easy time of it, a Russian soldier once stated. We think little of the Austrian infantry. As it had been since its foundation, the fundamental flaw in the Austro-Hungarian army remained the language barrier. The linguistic makeup of the Habsburg army meant officers had to master 8 to 10 languages in order to carry out their tasks successfully. After two years of war and numerous defeats, the best Habsburg officers were either dead or prisoners of war. On July 28th, Karl Litzman, a German officer who fought against the Russians in 1914, traveled to Galicia on a fact-finding mission for Berlin. Litzman's job was to assess the condition of the Austro-Hungarians and to offer his recommendations on how to improve their performance. What Litzman encountered speaks volumes about the poor state of the Habsburg military. He noted that some Austrian officers had been in the field with their troops for over two years, and were still unable to speak to their men. One Habsburg officer said he had been given command of a Hungarian division, despite the fact he could not speak a single word of the language. This pattern was all too familiar. Throughout his investigation, Litzman met with numerous officers who had the same problem. Negative reports were piling up in bunches. Just prior to the fall of Chernowitz, Vienna dispatched its own delegate to oversee the defenses of the Prude River. When the gentleman arrived, he took one look around and resigned on the spot. Even German officers were fed up. They found Austrian troops wanting, and considered them unreliable and borderline dubious. On July 29th, Litzman recalled a meeting with General Max Beckham, commander of the German 108th Infantry Division. Beckham complained that during the recent fighting, the Austrians had not informed him they were withdrawing, which nearly left his northern flank exposed to Russian forces. Beckham, who was noted for his meticulous preparation and devotion to his men, pointed to the vast gulf between Habsburg officers and frontline infantry. While the infantry waited in poorly constructed dugouts, 
the officers spent evenings in warm billets far from the front. It was often said that Habsburg officers spent more time decorating than building. There were also troubling rumors that some divisional commanders had abandoned their posts, leaving their men to fight with no leadership whatsoever. Although Litzman could not confirm these rumors, his final report was deeply troubling. When Litzman's findings were presented to the military council in Berlin, they hit like a thunderclap. There had been sharp criticisms of Habsburg military leadership in both Germany and Austria-Hungary for some time. As far back as the 1880s, the two nations understood that their alliance did not come without inherent risk. Berlin feared that Vienna would be a drain on her military, economic, and political resources, while Vienna had concerns about German ambition in Habsburg territory. Now, both these concerns were coming to the forefront, and in Galicia, Conrad and Linsingen were in search of a scapegoat. Someone had to take responsibility for the disaster at Brody, and Paul von Palalo was a convenient scalp. On August 3rd, Palalo's army was dissolved, and his remaining troops divided between northern and southern army groups. This is standard military practice, but what happened next defied all conventions. Instead of being given a post in the new formations, Palalo was sent on leave. This was unusual. When a unit is dissolved, it is common practice to give its old commander a new post, whether this was a job in another unit or some ceremonial desk job back home. Palalo received no hint in regards to his future, and he was left wondering what would happen next. Upon his return to Vienna, he contacted the military chancery, and two weeks later received a response which shook him to the core. The chancery's letter to Palalo read, and I quote, During the course of events, the former First Army was dissolved as an expedient measure and then divided between neighboring armies, and its headquarters thus became superfluous and was disbanded. The passive leadership and lack of initiative on part of General Paul Palalo contribute to this in no small part and consequently, High Command can no longer find the necessary confidence in General Palalo's leadership. High Command will no longer consider his reemployment as an army commander. End quote. Whether Palalo deserved this treatment remains a source of debate. If he was guilty of negligence, then he was certainly not alone among his fellow officers. The problem was that Palalo was a member of the Hungarian nobility through his father and seeing a Habsburg officer being treated in such an undignified manner caused the Habsburg army to close ranks. This was not because they had any love or sympathy for Palalo, but his dismissal gave them the precedent they needed. Fed up with Conrad's lack of leadership, Habsburg army officials in Vienna and Budapest staged a formal protest. They wanted Conrad gone. It was clear to them that the boss man had lost his grip, it was now reacting to events rather than anticipating them. The constant shuffling of units was a major source of headache. As an example, the Austrian 7th Army had to stretch its depleted forces between the Moldova River and the Carpathians. Its commanding officer had been promised four additional divisions, but Conrad had snatched them away soon after they arrived. This pattern continued throughout June and July. In truth, Conrad's reputation had already slid beyond repair. Aside from the conquest of Montenegro, 
the Austro-Hungarian army had no victories to call their own. Only when they fought alongside German troops did they perform with any degree of respectability. In Vienna and Budapest, calls for Conrad's resignation had increased threefold since March. In June 1916, the representative of the Habsburg Foreign Ministry in Teschen filed a damaging report in which he accused Conrad of being out of touch and irresponsible. This sentiment was echoed by the Hungarians in early July, who argued that all the monarchy's crises could be traced back to Conrad's inept leadership. Then, in August, a bombshell struck. On August the 8th, the ailing Emperor Franz Joseph, who had long supported Conrad, took an unprecedented step. Joseph was 86 years old, and after 68 years on the Habsburg throne, it looked as though the old man would not live to see the new year. Emperor Joseph had gone to war in 1914 expecting a quick victory over Serbia, and a strengthening of the monarchy. Under Conrad's ambitious plans, however, the dual monarchy had spent two years floundering in the wilderness. None of Conrad's plans had come to fruition. To Joseph, there did not appear to be any coherent strategy. Conrad was flailing about trying to secure his phantasmal victories, which only caused the enemies of the monarch to increase. Italy had declared war, and it appeared that Romania would be next. In the afternoon of August 8th, Emperor Joseph met with Hungarian Prime Minister Istvan Tissa and Foreign Minister Stefan Berian, both of whom had grown tired of Conrad's ineptitude. An official investigation into Conrad's leadership was launched soon after. The investigation was headed by Ferdinand Ritter von Marderer, one of Joseph's longtime advisors and noted Conrad critic. Marderer arrived at Teschen the following morning and discovered Conrad in a miserable mood. As Marderer expected, Conrad was not open to personal criticisms. He informed Marderer that the collapse of First and Fourth Armies had taken him by surprise, and made no mention of the transfer of so many experienced troops and almost all the heavy artillery for his Italian expedition. This was typical Conrad, and Marderer was not the least bit surprised. But then Conrad did something totally out of character. As the interview concluded, he advised Marderer that he should inform Vienna that they should not expect Russia to be defeated by military means. Marderer knew what was being inferred. Conrad was floating the idea of a compromise peace, which was a radical departure from his pre-war doctrine. In truth, Conrad had grown tired of the war. The performance of the Austro-Hungarian army was a plebiscite on his leadership and even a man of limited hindsight would have grown disheartened. Although he remained isolated in Teschen, the walls of the ancient castle could not keep the rumors from seeping in. He had heard that Vienna was actively seeking his replacement, and that one candidate had been Svetoslav Borovich, the senior officer of the Italian front. To save face, Conrad had but one option. In early August, Conrad went to Berlin and found that Falkenhayn was in the same situation. Events in Galicia had sparked an inquiry into Falkenhayn's leadership as well, and his enemies, Paul von Hindenburg and Erich Ludendorff, had resurfaced with a vengeance. Ever since the suspension of the Polish campaign in 1915, Hindenburg and Ludendorff had raged against what they saw as a missed opportunity of colossal proportions. 
the Russian bear had escaped our clutches, bleeding no doubt from more than one wound, but still not stricken to death, Hindenburg later wrote. Paul von Hindenburg and Eric Ludendorff had spent the last eight months on the Eastern Front, overseeing a socio-political experiment which offered Germany an escape from the clutches of the maritime blockade. After the Russians evacuated in 1915, Berlin found and now occupied a 100,000 square kilometer chunk of territory, including all of Lithuania, Latvia, and parts of northeastern Poland. With Ludendorff overseeing the logistics, the Germans turned this area into a breadbasket. By the spring of 1916, the occupation was producing important supplies and foodstuffs, which included animal skins, copper, brass, livestock, barbed wire, and iron. Although the occupation gave Ludendorff the opportunity to show off his administrative skills, he and Hindenburg were itching for a military command, and their supporters in Berlin, Vienna, and Budapest were eager to provide it. The Central Powers were back to where they were in 1914. Verdun showed little signs of success, and as had been the case with the Schlieffen Plan, there was concern that there was no alternative strategy. Like they had done at Tannenberg in 1914, Hindenburg and Ludendorff had saved Germany from collapse, and their supporters were expecting a repeat. Up until August 1916, Kaiser Wilhelm had ignored the calls to dismiss Falkenhayn, but the pressure to make better use of Hindenburg and Ludendorff was steadily mounting. The Chancellor, Betham Holwig, was one of the most vocal and influential. Both Betham Holwig and Falkenhayn blamed the other for the crisis that summer. Earlier that spring, Factory workers and Stuttgart walked off the job. Inflation had bit into fixed incomes, and the result was the emergence of a large-scale left-wing opposition to the war. Betham Holwig and Falkenhayn engaged one another on the domestic battlefield, both willing to sacrifice the other for their own political life. Earlier in the year, Falkenhayn had sought to unleash the U-boats against Allied shipping, which Holwig had blocked fearing international criticisms and the specter of the United States entering the war. By now, Falkenhayn's plans to win the war on the Western Front had failed, and the German chief pointed to Betham Holwig's meddling as the culprit. In response, the Chancellor tried for something equally popular, and championed the idea of raising Hindenburg and Ludendorff to command all the armies on the Eastern Front. They were the heroes of Tannenberg after all, and they offered a better hope of a crushing victory than Falkenhayn's laissez-faire approach. When Falkenhayn sat down with Conrad that August to discuss the Eastern Crisis, the two men found they were dependent on the other for their own political survival. Falkenhayn was aware of Conrad's domestic troubles, and so proposed a way out. They would divide the Galician front, with Paul von Hindenburg and Erich Ludendorff taking command of all Austro-German forces north of Lemberg, while all forces in the south would be given to Archduke Karl. Behind this thinly-veiled act of diplomacy was all a deliberate ploy by Falkenhayn to keep Hindenburg and Ludendorff away from Berlin. With calls for his resignation now an open secret, Falkenhayn needed something to appease his enemies, and hoped that a Hindenburg-led Eastern Front would be just that. Conrad, of course, was equally desperate. The Hungarians were especially vocal in their support of a unified front, and Conrad knew that if he approved the change, he would still hold nominal authority. Conrad agreed, 
and the following day, terms were drawn up and signed in ink. Curiously, Falkenhayn was not present, having missed the signing due to an unspecified illness. As Conrad departed Berlin, both men felt they had one up the other. Falkenhayn had long envisioned himself as head of a unified command system. Although the circumstances were less than favorable, they did provide an amicable solution. However, it was Conrad who won the trade short term. He could see which way the wind was blowing. He knew Falkenhayn was speaking from a position of weakness. The Hindenburg-Ludendorff duo would not go away. Appointing them command of the Eastern Front had given them the foot in the door. Falkenhayn's western strategy was dead, stopped by the gates of Verdun and torn apart by the Somme and Brusilov. Conrad may have sacrificed his last shred of dignity, but he would soon realize he had given up so much more. In time, he would come to realize that he had just condemned the dual monarchy to total subjugation under German rule. Conrad and Falkenhayn were safe for now, but if they thought the Russians had forgotten about them, they were dead wrong. The following morning, Alexei Everett and Kropatkin launched their long-delayed attack. As expected, given their disinterest, the attack was a dismal failure. Despite outnumbering the German army standing opposite them by a staggering 750,000 men, yes, three-quarters of a million, the combined effort made no inroads. 17 separate attacks were launched on a 190-kilometer front in modern-day Belarus. Within days, 80,000 Russians lay dead, and more than double wounded. An observation by Hindenburg adds graphically the sort of horrors the Russian masses were exposed to as they hurled themselves forward. Quote, No one knows the figures for Russian casualties in the war. All we know is that sometimes in our battles with the Russians, we had to remove the mounds of enemy corpses from before our trenches in order to get a clear field of fire against the fresh assaulting waves. End quote. The disaster in the north also brought the following rebuke from Tsar Nicholas. Quote, Many of our commanding generals are silly idiots, who even after two years of warfare cannot learn the first and simplest lessons in warfare. End quote. Although Tsar Nicholas was certainly not the epitome of military success, his remarks laid bare an uncomfortable truth. The poor showing of Everett and Kropatkin only cemented in Stavka's mind that Russian troops were simply inferior to the Germans. It was the Germans who bludgeoned them in 1915, at Lake Narach, and now again in the summer. This fear was steeped in the Russian psyche, and would soon seep into Brusilov's army. The Brusilov Offensive made its greatest gains in June and July 1916, but by August, the Russians found their momentum had ebbed. Brusilov had hoped to capture the railway hub at Koval, which had remained under Austro-German control. After the fall of Brody, Brusilov planned a massive strike to capture Koval, employing the Elite Guards Army, which had arrived from St. Petersburg on July 19th. The Guards Army were the best troops Russia had to offer. 60,000 men strong, each over 6 feet in height, they were once described as the finest human animals in all of Europe. However, their officers were lacking in skill, imagination, and leadership. 
the arrival of the Guards' army did not go unnoticed by the Central Powers. The Guards' commanding officer, Vladimir Brezbrazov, a man whom Brusilov once described as upstanding though unbelievably stubborn, had established his headquarters at the northern corner of the Lusk salient, across from the largest concentration of German forces south of the Pripyat. On July 18th, the Guards' army made their first assault on Koval. Under a curtain of artillery fire, they approached the Austro-German defenses south of Koval, and immediately forced the defending Austro-Hungarian division across the Stuckod River. Brusilov ordered his cavalry to give chase, but the Russians found the terrain across the Stuckod most unfavorable. The attackers were broken up by folds in the ground, and numerous small copses and areas of swamp. The Central Powers had destroyed many of the bridges and causeways, which prevented the Russians from maintaining contact. The Russians found they were stuck in the narrow isthmuses between the swamps. Here, the guards suffered terrible losses. Every village they encountered was strongly fortified with machine guns and anti-personnel traps. Brusilov would later admit that these fortifications were not expected. A big reason why the Russians found themselves stymied was their loss of air superiority. The Russian Air Corps was able to par with the Austro-Hungarian, but the arrival of German aeroplanes tipped the scale in favor of the Central Powers. The Russians suffered terrible losses in the skies in late July and August. In an interview with Alfred Knox, the British Army liaison, Brusilov revealed that he had five aircraft per army, against the Germans, who had 70. The loss of the skies meant the Russians had lost their eyes and ears. Photographs of enemy positions cannot be taken, and preparation suffered. Whereas in June, a Russian aircraft could maintain an hour's flying time, they were now reduced to just five minutes, before being shot down or forced to land. With no answer to German superiority, the Russians could not see beyond their first objective. A steady stream of German battalions were being fed into the firing line, and as German command anticipated, this resulted in the neighboring Austro-Hungarian divisions showing greater resilience. When word of the German reinforcements made its way back to the Russians, some of Brusilov's generals delayed. Alexei Kaladin, commander of the Russian 8th Army, who was always a pessimist at heart, nearly cancelled his next set of attacks. Even the guards commander, Brezbrazov, who considered himself an accolade of Peter the Great, cowered at the thought of attacking a German-held fortification. To be fair, the guards had suffered terribly. In just under a week of fighting, they had lost 30,000 men, half their combat strength. The problem, Brusilov noted, was not that the troops were poor. It was that their leaders had not prepared them for the realities of combat. German observers noted that whenever the Russians stopped, whether to catch a breath or check their surroundings, their officers were right there behind them, using sabers to drive their men forward. In the words of Alfred Knox, the British military attaché, who witnessed these terrible events up close, quote, The Russian command spends all its time in teaching the Russian soldier to die, instead of teaching him to conquer. End quote. Knox's assessment was right on the money. On August 2nd, the character of the Guards' officers came to the fore. The commander of the Guards' 1st Corps was the Grand Duke Pavel Alexandrovich, 
the youngest child of the previous emperor, Alexander II, and thus the uncle of Tsar Nicholas. Pavel Alexandrovich was a man far out of his element. Chronically ill from gallstones and twice divorced, he had been banished from the Romanov family for marrying a woman considered beneath his stature. Prior to the outbreak of war, Alexandrovich was living in Italy with his second family, before Tsar Nicholas offered him the command of the first corps of the guard's army. The Grand Duke had only one qualification. He was a Romanov, plain and simple. Alexandrovich was a poor leader, whom Brusilov considered, quote, very brave personally, but with no military understanding at all, end quote. Alexandrovich and Brezbrezov were responsible for designing and implementing the training program for the Guards' Army. Since the Grand Duke and Brezbrezov were myopic throwbacks to the heydays of Tsarism, the regime they implemented was vastly outdated, most of it being close-order drill and marksmanship, which to them had not evolved since the days of Napoleon. As historian Prit Butter writes, quote, The guards were prepared in much the same manner that would have been the case in the years immediately before the war. End quote. Therefore, they were unprepared for Brusilov's modern approach. On August 2nd, the guards' army was hotly engaged in the marshes of the Stockad, just a little southwest of Koval. For 48 hours, the guards had been held up outside a small village, which would have offered them the chance to outflank from the south. Brusilov saw an opportunity. For August 5th, he ordered Alexandrovich to take first course south and attack a thinly held sector near the village of Sokol, on the banks of the Book River. Brusilov had made available several batteries of fresh artillery and expected Alexandrovich to seize the Book crossings via a flanking maneuver. However, Alexandrovich had different ideas. Russian intelligence had indicated that the enemy's defenses along the book were pointing east. But if Alexandrovich managed to reach Sokol from the northern forests, he could get the jump on the defending garrison. Having grown up surrounded by portraits of Peter the Great, Alexandrovich sought the romantic side of warfare, one of strong formations advancing courageously upon the enemy, colors flying in the wind. Alexandrovich was in no way prepared to handle the reality of battle. The noise, the confusion, the screams of the wounded. He also felt that sneaking up on an unsuspecting enemy was below the dignity of an elite Russian force. Elite they may have been, but on this day, individual bravery would not be enough to overcome collective firepower. Determined to seize the book crossings with the greatest show of force, Alexandrovich ordered a direct assault. Two divisions of Russia's elite infantry marched straight towards Sokol in plain sight. True to Brusilov's warning, they marched straight into a swamp. There were only a few causeways available, and these were soon congested with men. Thousands of Russian troops were mown down as they advanced, while German aircraft strafed and bombed. Desperate to avoid the terrible slaughter, some men jumped into the marsh and drowned. Weighed down by slime and wool, they were easy targets for enemy riflemen, and within minutes, the attack floundered. When word got back to Brusilov, he slammed his fist in disgust. Frustrated by failure, Brusilov called a halt to the operation on August 9th. At both ends of the salient, the attack failed to make inroads. 
The guard's army had been annihilated. 54,000 casualties in just under two weeks of fighting, while losses in the southwest front now approached the 1 million mark. From a military perspective, the Battle of Koval was a disappointment which bordered on disaster. The Russians were unable to make progress, and the salient remained unchanged since June. In his attempt to finally take Koval, Russia's war limitations were painfully exposed. Brusilov had owed his success to two things, the training of his men and a little bit of luck. After 70 days of unceasing combat, many of his original units had been decimated, and the men sent to replace them lacked the skills which Brusilov relied on to accomplish his goals. In this lays the big distinction. The reason Brusilov's methods could not be repeated elsewhere was because no general had gone to such lengths to prepare his men. Prior to the offensive, the four armies of the Southwest Army Group represented the best field army ever assembled by Imperial Russia. It was young, eager, and of course, modern. This did not happen overnight. Brusilov worked his staff and men tirelessly, and what emerged that summer was the groundwork for Russia's greatest military feat since the Russo-Turkish War of 1877-78. However, it must be remembered that Brusilov did not envision his offensive to be as prolonged as it had been. The ineptitude of the other senior commanders meant Brusilov was forced to carry more of the burden, progressing beyond his means and into the unknown. In other words, Brusilov did his job so well, he got to do other people's jobs as well. Alexeyev was happy to send him the guns and infantry he required, but without proper training they were little more than fodder for the Austro-German gunners. Brusilov is often criticized for abandoning his innovative methods and regressing back to typical battering ram style of warfare. I feel that such criticisms are unwarranted. Brusilov was given near unlimited reinforcements, that much is clear. It is also clear that these reinforcements were not nearly the same caliber as Brusilov's original men. Brusilov did not abandon his tactics by choice. It was forced upon him by the lack of skill in the Russian leadership. Even the guard's army was painfully exposed. Its annihilation was the result of terrible leadership, as Alexandrovich and Brezbrazov could not be bothered to keep up with the changing current. In the end, the guard's army which had spent nearly a full year in training ceased to exist within two weeks. The fallout from this disaster made its way to Tsar Nicholas, who removed Alexandrovich and Brezbrazov at the end of August. If there are any positives we can glean from this later part of the offensive, it is that Brusilov's efforts were not in vain. The August attacks had convinced Romania to enter the war against Austria-Hungary. On August the 17th, representatives from Romania, Italy, and Russia signed an agreement that would see Romania enter the war with the Entente. Ten days later, on August 27th, Romania declared war on the dual monarchy. It was Brusilov's success which brought Romania into the war. Ironically, it was the Russians who would suffer from it. Next week, we'll get into how and why Romania ended up joining the First World War. It is a story which began with high hopes, but ended in tragedy. Within four months, Bucharest would be under German occupation, and the Russian gains in Galicia all but collapsed. 
the Allies thought Romania would tip the balance of power in the Balkans. Instead, it became an ulcer, which would allow the Central Powers to continue the war into 1918. That's it for this week. Be sure to check out our website at thegreatwarpodcast.podbean.com. There you can find a list of sources and contact information if you wish to get in touch with me. Listener feedback is greatly appreciated, so if you have any questions or comments, you can follow us on Twitter at Great War Podcast or reach us through email thegreatwarpodcast at outlook.com. If you are enjoying the show and wish to help us out, you can make a one-time donation through the homepage. All donations go to help cover the cost of hosting and of acquiring new sources. Another way to help the show is to rate us five stars on iTunes. iTunes charts their podcasts based on the number of user reviews, so the more feedback we have, the higher we'll place. This will ensure I stay tethered to my laptop and continue working on new episodes. This has been episode 58 of the Great War Podcast. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you again shortly.